From Miss Radio, I'm Angelo Gonzalez. This is Mr. Gonzalez's Neighborhood. Today, Justin Brian Bajari, an expert in the development world and his insights on how to actually do something in your community now. It's Tuesday, September 24th. And welcome back. My name is Angelo Gonzalez, and you're listening to Miss Radio Podcast. Today, we had the distinct pleasure of having uh, Brian uh, Bajari. You got like, it. Like Safari. Um, <laughs> a local here uh, with plenty of experience in what we're about to discuss here today. And um, we met a while back ago at uh, Cafe Lumiere. And uh, I had the distinct pleasure of calling this gentleman a good friend of mine. And um, we've had many a conversation on many a different subject. So uh, to get to the heart of the matter, um, I'm really happy for you as to, for you to be here today. Uh, Brian, to, to, to go into detail, uh, I want to read his bio real quick. Uh, has over 20 years of experience organizing, leading, and influencing in the world of nonprofits, NGOs, and grassroots organizations. He's worked in uh, working on issues such as uh, local at-risk homeless populations to former child soldiers in refugee camps. Brian has spoke at schools, businesses, and has helped so many different people in building hope uh, within their communities uh, on a professional level, on a personal level. Uh, he is someone who speaks from the heart um, and if you haven't, uh, by now, he has also a TEDx talk, uh, What I've Learned About Compassion from the Homeless. Um, Brian is also a graduate of Dartmouth College in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, so without further ado, um, I'm happy to have you here with us today as uh, we go into depth into your story yeah. and into your your. Uh, work here right on Angelo thank you so much for having me it's great to be here in this little sound booth with you <laughs> and where it says audacity on the window which is like one of my favorite words you have the audacity to be here we got to have the audacity to do something brother yeah just to do something just to keep moving just to keep moving uh, <laughs> yeah so, go do something yeah right one of my I favorite t-shirts that says says do something just live you know live and so I mean it's Going into this, um, there's no set framework of how we're going to go into our conversation. I'm kind of sure. curious, the, the surprises of, uh, you know, uh, being living here in Monterey and um, how we got involved here. So uh, I know you had gone to college in Dartmouth, but uh, just a little bit about yourself. Where where did you grow up? How did you end up in this place? Yeah, right on. Well, I'm a Midwestern baby, but we moved. My my family moved out here when I was four to Monterey, the this city of King, you know, Monterey. So we are we've been I've been local for a long time, and then I moved away to college, lived in New England for a dozen years, and then moved back here right after September 11, 2001. So, and I've been doing a lot of work in uh, advocacy of, you know, what we call, what we term hope building. Um, I think that's a, it's a good verb to utilize among all sorts of different populations, whether it's local homeless, chronically homeless, what I like to refer to as our outdoor neighbor, uh, outdoor living neighbors, 
because they are our neighbors no matter what um, or whether it's with students now in our newest initiative for, for our Sparrow uh, nonprofit or whether it's our friends and partners overseas in East Africa primarily Uganda and South Sudan who have some have done a lot of work uh, with former child soldiers and trafficked youth so kind of been around the map around the around the block a few times with with these projects Wow so it sounds like you have very prolific outreach programs whether mm -hmm. it's abroad or sure it's here locally um, you said you had returned uh, from college uh, to this area. What really inspired you to come back? Oh man, I. To be honest, the beach. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I mean, yeah, I love New England. Don't get me wrong; it's good. It's beautiful country up there, but it is cold, and the winters are long. And I wanted to raise my kids out here uh, in the beach culture in, in this area in Monterey. So that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the long and the short of it. And as a result, you know, my kids love their beach rats. They love, they love being at the beach almost uh, every weekend. So, uh, so glad we made that choice. Wow. Yeah. And so at that point, you had finished up college and you'd already established a family? Or? Already established a family, not in college, at post-college, <laughs> just to be clear. Just, just to be clear. Just to be clear. Uh. But, but, we, but my marriage was the first, the, actually the, the local student newspaper wrote about it because we were the first ones to be married, which was a week after my graduation. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. going in from that and moving back home, uh, what was the overall sentiment, you know, living in this community, what were some of the, the feelings and uh, emotions coming back to home, you know? Well, yeah, you come back to home, and you, I think in this area, specifically if you've grown up here, I think it's so good if you have the ability to move away for a time being and kind of experience the world on a broader scope. And then you come back, if you have the ability to come back here and live here, um, man, how much you can appreciate this place for its beauty, for its sheer, just uh, natural, stunning landscapes and the ocean. And I mean, you've got, this is paradise. This is, this is a place where very, very few people ever will ever get to experience. So count your, you know, count your, uh, your fortune and be gra grateful for living here, even if it's just for a year as a student. Man, Monterey is beautiful. So, uh, and of course, coming back to family and friends it, uh, that have grown up here, it's it's always good. It's always good to reconnect. Uh, with, you know, kind of your grassroots level with with people who understand who you are from not just a professional standpoint, but also from you know growing up playing youth league baseball or soccer or whatever. So that's always good. Yeah, that's that sounds really. Uh, I mean. Living here for the past year, it's it's been a doozy, you know, because like things are going so fast as a graduate student. For sure, for you guys, yeah. But at the same time, like you just stop and look around. And I remember when I first moved out here, and I was having a conversation with my mom, and she was just like, "You made it," and I was like, "What do you mean?" She's like, "You know, don't don't worry about your living expenses. I mean, worry about it, but uh, effectively, you know, the air you breathe is coming straight off the ocean." Sink your teeth and sink your teeth. Sink your toes in uh, in the in the in the sand every once in a while, and like grasp yourself in the current reality that you're in. And um, yeah, so it's it really is paradise. It is. And at the same time, uh, you know, it's such a mystical place. I remember reading uh, John Steinbeck's um, uh, Pearl, the Pearl. Sure. And it, 
it places a lot of his stories place Monterey in this really mystical, magical place that like just random, interesting coincidences might appear, and you meet uh, folks like yourself, you know, and it just it just seems like it's destined, you know, uh, sure. to be part of your reality. So if you're, if you're open to it. If you're open if to it. If you're open to it. A lot of people <laughs> aren't open to that. And I think it's a posture of, uh, of willingness, of opening your hands up to receive those encounters with strangers, or yeah. you're willful, you're closed-handed, you're, you're kind of knuckling this thing too hard. You're not allowing these kind of random experiences to, you know, embrace a culture of hospitality with strangers who then become friends. Like... We've become friends over the last few months, and uh, it's been amazing getting to know you and some of your story, too, Angela. So thank you for allowing that culture to take place in your life. Yeah, yeah. You speak about, I remember you mentioned uh, outdoor neighbors. Yeah. You know, and like the whole premise of how, you know, we're not robots. We notice things outside of our everyday ongoings of you know, your work and my schooling. And uh, a colleague of mine once said, who went here, uh, shout out to Rafael Hernandez. He, um, he mentioned a lot of the learning, a lot of the experiences that you're going to have are outside the classroom, you know. Yeah. And, and like you said, being open to that and uh, being able to receive that, um, it's just the state of, state of grace to be able to experience that kind of mode. So coming into the subject of home and finding that place and balance in your life to where you started noticing things in the community. At what point in time did you feel like, okay, my work is here, here now in Monterey? Locally, you're asking, yeah, um, in terms of, I, I think one of the, one of my favorite poets is Mary Oliver, and she has a sweet little poem called Instructions for Living a Life. And it's just three lines. It's, uh, so instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. And I think that's just a very simple way to live. If we're paying attention to people around us, if we're paying attention to, you know, why why do we have so many people who are living outside here in one of the most beautiful cities in the entire world? What's going on? What are their stories? What, what happened along the way? Because nobody dreams at the age of 10 of being chronically homeless in any community. Something went sideways along the journey, whether that's systemic or whether that's personal or a combination. Always, it's always a combination of systemic injustices as well as some kind of personal decision. These are people with stories, right. with dreams. And so I think uh, a lot of it is just simply paying attention. And now when you pay attention, now you're going to be astonished at some of the stories. And when, you're, when you become astonished at some of the stories, you're going to tell about it. And you want to carry that burden up the mountain that this person who's a veteran who served our country for five, six years in Iraq, saw combat, experienced PTSD, was married to another veteran, comes back and is experiencing PTSD, even though he's holding down a job here locally as a crane operator, just can't handle the, the, the trauma that he lives every night in his mind. And so he ends up chronically homeless on the streets in Monterey. 
police Monterey PD have to bust him a lot for public intoxication. But what's his story? His story is he served our country. Is that the end of his story? Nah. No. Nah. And I think I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking they have to try and fix somebody hmm. or fix yeah. the problem yeah. or let's address the homeless problem. I, th I think we have to uh, readjust the conversation to we have to get outside of our fear of simply asking and paying attention and being astonished. Get outside of our fear barriers and start engaging on a very micro scale. Hey, who are you? What's your name? Oh, cool. How long have you been in town? Oh, right on. Didn't know that. And it'll be amazing to see where those conversations take you. Yeah, it is. It, to me, engaging in conversation with the other, right? Um, the minute you think of you know, how our minds presuppose and prejudge, uh, almost automatically, right? When we see someone, you know, we think taller, shorter, richer, poor, and we put them in these categorical boxes and we treat them that way. But when you sort of, I guess, de-evolve from that way of thinking and like enter a new space of, mm. you know, that which is in you is also me, and we're sort of, you know, going along this journey, you know, experiencing different realities, but essentially there's, you know, you're a human being, fundamentally, you know, let's cut through the chase. And like you said, just like, what's going on? Marvin Gaye said it best in his song, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, throw that jam on there. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, now you're touching on the bounds of, of be, being a mystic, a, pra a practicing mystic, of embodying that culture of hospitality to anyone to anyone and I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do but I don't think it's rocket science I think it just takes a, a posture of what we talked about before of being of willingness to allow those strange encounters mm. to shape how we understand who are the people that are surrounding us right now surrounding us in our community whether they're whether they're uh, you know a socialite in, who lives in Pebble Beach or whether there's my friend Ben, who, was, who I was referring to when he, a veteran who lived on the streets for a number of years in Monterey and found his journey and his pathway off of that and into a whole different kind of living. Um, and those, those are the stories that are worth living, right? I think, at the end of the day, I think they're worth living. Yeah, and ex being able to, like you said, I, I think it's such a critical way in which to look at the framework of how we think about homelessness and sure. like not as a problem where you know we're going to come up with a solution and that's the end all right yeah and it kind of equates to the soldier you know serving the, his country and then we think that that's the end all right but their their story continues they go on living they come back home and they have to find a home Right. Um, I remember I was interviewing uh, another gentleman who uh, was running for city council, yep. uh, Toro Maddox, and he was going to detail about how when he came back uh, from serving, how he felt like a, like a Japanese warrior. I forget the name. Samurai? Yeah, samurai. And like when a samurai doesn't have a purpose, they just wander mm. aimlessly. Yeah. You know, and so being able to find a sense of purpose 
Um, because as vulnerable as the human condition can get, um, finding some sort of guiding compass, you know, and, you know, I, I haven't walked in your shoes, but something tells me that you've been able to allow people to find their compass, you know, in their journey and to be able to serve that role. That's very powerful. Um, and I see that with, with the work that you've done here. I've seen, I've heard, listened to your TEDx talk <laughs> and I've been moved, you know, and I've, I've been placed in a, in a part of my life to where, you know, we can sit down and have these conversations. And I think making that shift um, is, is critical. So we were at a conference last week with the Monterey Bay Econo Economic Partnership. Mm -hmm. And we were discussing uh, Bruce Katz's new localism. And he prefaced his speech on um, that we're not going to find answers in D.C. Right. That what we have to do, the new zeitgeist of our generation is, is to work within our means, um, not outside this periphery that the media tells us, that whatever's going on out there. Because, you know, we'll watch CNN or Fox or whatever, and... It's like situation hopeless, you know, like there's nothing we totally. can do about it. Totally. And you feel helpless. Yeah. So, you know, these these organizations that you've helped establish, um, how effective have you seen uh, change happen here uh, within just your personal contacts with, with people hopping on board? Um, do, you, do you see... Uh, a sense of nimbyism, or do you see like a progression maybe moving forward, or is it just complex? You know, depending on who you talk to. Well, it's, right? yeah, it's certainly complex, but I appreciate I appreciate your sentiment on on the new localism, because that's that's the we're not going to we're not going to impact or affect policy uh, in D.C. right now necessarily. But if we have a proven kind of concept here locally, it has a potential to impact DC on a, on a broader scale. I think micro practice can inform kind of macro policy, mm. but it's until you start practicing those micro acts of generosity, of hospitality, of compassion, hopefully of wisdom, that's going to get you on that kind of slippery slope of broader civic engagement um, that can impact that can impact uh, policy at the D.C. or national or international levels. I met a woman in D.C. not too long ago. She's in her 20s. She, uh, she, uh, she's writing policy for the U.N. on human trafficking. I said, well, what's your story? She said, I was trafficked in my, in my, t in my town when I was a kid. And, and I said, you made it here to the U.N.? She said, yeah. And I said, well, that's amazing. Are you still involved in, in your community back home? She says, yeah. When I go back home to my home country in Uganda, I go and dress as a, a street prostitute in order to see what is happening on my streets, where I grew up, where I lived today. So it informs me to create better and enact better policy. I think that's, that's the model, right? So um, in terms of NIMBYism, in terms of uh, has the needle been moved, yes and no. I mean, the, the issue, if, if we want to name, it, name the issue, the issue is lack of affordable housing. If we want to name the solution, uh, we can always refer to Lloyd Pendleton and how he was able to eliminate 95% of chronic homelessness in the state of Utah. 
right? And so he was able to navigate past fear barriers and became a real solutions-focused kind of entrepreneur of ending chronic homelessness. Now we have a lot of amazing people in our community doing a lot of amazing things for men and women and children and families experiencing homelessness. Um, the problem is, is that we just don't have people who are willing to address with their pocketbooks getting people off the streets into affordable housing. A lot of solutions have been offered, but there's there haven't been a lot there hasn't been a lot of movement. I will say, uh, Gathering Place for Women recently received a big grant to provide more beds for women who are experiencing homelessness, and I think that's an amazing an amazing feat for our, for for the Monterey Peninsula. And there's a lot there are a lot more organizations out there that people can get involved with, but it's it's a matter of uh, and that's why in my, in my world, in my reality, I've, I've switched from, from working with adults to trying to work with students because I, honestly, uh, Angelo, I don't, I don't have a lot of trust in adults anymore. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, fair. That's so is fair. that fair? So, I mean, that's, I, I mean I, I've been on so many committees and subcommittees and panels and, and forums and, and conferences and, and we have the same conversations and, and we, haven't, we haven't really done a great job in seeing a lot of change um, yeah. in our communities. That reminds me of the story of, um, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but and you can allow to jump in, but um, that story where you have uh, Jesus is hanging out at some person's house, and I think it's Mary and Martha, mm -hmm. and Ma Mary, I think, is tending to Jesus, and she's she may be just I believe watching his feet or just you know just next to him near him you know, gotcha. spending time with him and then Martha is a busy bee she's just like washing the dishes cleaning the house and then effectively you know Jesus is like what are you doing Martha you know right like, what so getting at the heart of the matter like we can spend our wheels and our time mm -hmm. you know like you said uh, doing all these different meetings but are we really meeting are we really acting right you know it, it's um and how does that look like you know sh how do we design intelligent uh projects you know and and you speak to that i think i mean yeah i've come to this position where like i'm an adult now and i'm just like i don't think we got everything figured out just because we're bigger you know and we've had more years to our lives um so it's like looking at a plant and like we appreciate like a plant when it grows and we're like, ah, oh, you know, you've arrived, you know, but effectively when you become an adult or you're looking at a child so many times, there's so many, I think, and you probably can speak on this, uh, inspirational points that come from, you know, the youth um, of any generation just because the newness of the reality, you know. Uh, they're still hopeful, you know, they still <laughs> have dreams and aspirations that like they might say something you're like Okay, wow. I I mean that's simple, but like I see where you're going with that and, like let's Encourage that even more so, you know, so Speaking on that, you know community-led involvement. How's that been working with Sparrow Challenge? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so You know, that's our newest with the nonprofit our nonprofit um, we started originally really focused on 
our partnerships in East Africa who are working with former child soldiers, and then our local partnerships with uh, those who are, uh, in, you know, kind of on the uh, outskirts of society here, marginalized by society, who are our outdoor living neighbors. We realize that, um, you know, this, the, the, the young people overseas in East Africa, uh, they became more of my mentors, meaning they taught me a whole lot more than I was even bringing to the table when I would, when I would go over there on, on a somewhat regular basis. And one of my partners, Patrick, he, uh, he, he actually was kicked out of his village, he and his sister, and he heard that there was jobs in the city, walked three days uh, with his sister and no shoes to the city to find that there were no jobs for young people. He's 12-ish at, the age, at, at, at that time. And he ends up in the slums. So he's homeless in his country, in his, in his, home, in his home country in Uganda. And he's in Kampala, and there's pockets of slums all throughout the city. And I won't tell his whole story. His whole story is quite amazing and will be made. I know somebody's going to write a book on him or, he, or well, there's going to be a movie made about him. Uh, I just talked to actually some uh, uh, documentary film workers out of New York City who are interested in his story. So I hope, I hope they pick up on that. Um, but we'll see. But he ends up, by the time he's 14, he knows how to navigate his city the slums, how to survive, because when you're homeless, you're living in your brainstem, your fight, flight, or freeze, right? Um, and the other Fs that are involved there that I won't say on, on, on the air. Um, and and he, uh, he sees something move on top of a trash heap, and, on, uh, and it kind of tumbles down in a bag, and he goes and investigates, and inside the bag is a baby girl who's still alive. Somebody had thrown away their baby girl in the slums. And so, you know, he would, when I go to schools and I ask about what would you do if you're Patrick in his shoes or sandals, as the case was, uh, usually the youngest students say at first, they say, hey, he should go to the hospital or he, he should go to the police or to the, fire, the firefighters. And I'm like, yeah, those are the perfect answers. You go to somebody who might be able to take care of this baby. And so that's what he does. He runs outside of his slum and goes to the nearest authorities, and the authorities tell Patrick, put her back, or you found her. No. She's better off dead. Are you serious? So now, here's the question. What do you do with that as somebody who has zero resources? He's, he's in poverty beyond poverty. He's just trying to take care of his sister, fend off you know, both police as well as young uh, roving gangs of, of youth. Um, disease and, and squalor and all of that and so he, as Patrick would put it he felt waves of compassion and there's no way he's gonna put her back and he decides right then and there that he's going to raise that baby girl as his own daughter alongside of his sister with the very few resources that they have at that point Patrick finds his true North calling that act of hospitality of compassion of generosity of wisdom informed because he had a choice. We all have a choice, both literally and metaphorically. We are walking past babies who are thrown in trash heaps every day. Yeah. Right? Literally and metaphorically. Not mostly metaphorically for us in our, in our context, but in other contexts, it's a very literal reality. The question is, what is your response? Are you going to embody a little bit of hospitality? And where is that hospitality going to lead you? And I always I love to say the best journeys are those journeys. You have light enough for the very next step. And Patrick had light enough for the next step, decides to raise her as his own, finds his true north calling, and starts mentoring young kids in the slums on how to survive. 
Well, you know, the Dalai Lama says money comes from where money comes from, and I won't go into the whole story, but today, Patrick, and by the way, you can look him up, raisinguphopeforuganda.org. He's got his own website. Check it out. That's a little plug. If you're on Facebook, go look up uh, uh, Patrick Sesenyonjo. Uh, you can find him under my name and uh, look him up as well. But um, today, he's got a halfway house that he's built, two orphanages, a boys and a girls orphanage that he's built, and he provides funding for, for kids to go to school out of those orphanages and they use those orphanages during the day as a day school for other slum kids and then he's built an entire village outside of Kampala called the Village of Hope where there's a, there's dormitories, a soccer pitch, there's a school, there's a playground, there's uh, coffee growing, banana growing, cattle raising, pig raising, yeah. far, farm to market, the whole nine yards and Patrick without any degree behind his name, no education, no college education, has done all of this impacting the lives of thousands of people and he's the ripe age of 27. <laughs> 27. You heard it folks. You 27. Can it. You can do it. You That's can do it. And so, I mean, those stories, I mean, he's become my mentor. I learned from him. I learned about what community building looks like on a holistic level. Is Patrick perfect? Of course not. Nobody is. But Patrick has found his true north calling and he impacts the lives of kids who are abandoned every day in his world and he's doing something about it. He's doing something about it. How do we do that locally? How, and a lot of times, especially in our local western context, we look at service to the community or what's called community service as just simply picking up trash on the side of the highway or on the beach, which is a good thing. We need to do that. Right. But service to the community sky's the limit. It's primarily entrepreneurial. It's primarily, you can do anything. Yeah. But we framed it as, well, we penalize low-level offenders in our court system with community service. So whether we like it or not, subconsciously, we've kind of attached that to a paradigm that it's a penalty. Yeah, yeah, it's the structure of how we think about community service, right? Because I remember going on the Camino in Spain, and we're going on this walk uh, across Spain and at some point someone tells me this walk was uh, a, a, a penalty against uh, people who had crimes against the state in in Spain and as penalty they could either go to the jail cell or they could go on this walk sure go on this journey I'm thinking to myself what we've got this all like forward-thinking progressive you know like this is uh, a way to self-actualize right. yourself Right. And you're looking at the dark ages where they are, you know, putting people on, on this trail so they can, you know, find the straight and narrow. Totally. You know, find that north calling and, you know, reintegrate themselves in society. So when you look at community service in our Western framework, it's interesting to me because, like you said, it's, it's posed as, you know, um, something that you can do if you have a low level offense or um, you know you have an off day and you want to you know contribute which is which is good um, but it's a very base standardized right. method of operations and then of course you know the boundaries and frameworks and, and, and the red tape that we have to deal with I know when uh, uh, the women's march was going on and I was astonished at how much they had to fork over in fees just oh, yeah. to go down Alvarado. Oh, yeah. I'm just like, 
can we walk people or can we walk? Can we just walk? <laughs> you know? Why are there so many fees attached to just walking? Yeah. yeah I know. And I, know. Uh, I remember being in Argentina and I was working out in a second level gym and I see a mass of people walking down sure. the road. And I asked in Spanish, like, what's going on? Que te pasa? Mm. And they're like, oh, um, several women have been uh, involved in, in rape cases and, and there's been a couple murders in town. And this is in Mendoza, Argentina, medium-sized level city. But um, effectively, this created this movement um, that had spurred in the media. And all of a sudden, you have waves of people just, just protesting. And I don't think that they had to pay anything <laughs> to do Right. That. You know, so like how being on, on the NGO side of things, how do we get from from our ideation stage mm -hmm. to the action stage yeah. and what can we do as as policymakers to like help demitigate you know how people can serve their community or sure. effectively is it just something like we have to create a mentality that's different well yeah i think so i, I think i think you know part of it is not only is it a penalty Sometimes in our court systems, you know, it's community service. It's also sometimes a requirement in schools. And that's not a bad thing, community service being a requirement. The problem is when we frame it as a penalty or a requirement. It's not framed ever as an opportunity, hmm. an opportunity to think outside the box, an opportunity to think divergently. And so I think part of, the, part of what we're attempting to do is to demystify what it means to serve the community and so we simply it's not rocket science but it's rocket science we go to schools and we say we ask students hey what do you like to do what do you like to do and so so we're on a whiteboard and kids are uh i like to eat pizza okay great we'll put that up there i like to uh draw i like to play soccer i like to swim i like to dance i like to sing i like to play chess on and on the list goes and they're primed because they're thinking about what they like to do. And then we simply flip it and ask the students, hey, what, what are problems that you see in our community, in your community, in your school? What, what, are, what are the problems? Well, they're already primed thinking about what they like to do. It's so easy just to get switch gears. Oh, bullying, loneliness, isolation, mental wellness and mental health among uh, teenagers. Uh, homelessness, environmental degradation, and on and on the list goes. Isolation among the elderly. Well, we simply then ask, this is the rocket science, not rocket science part, can you marry what you like to do with a problem you see in our community? Right. And, and it's like, okay, they're thinking, all of a sudden light bulbs start going off. Epiphanies start landing. Oh, yeah, uh, isolation among the elderly is a problem in our community. Well, I like, to, I like to eat tacos, one kid said. What if we do a taco party for that elderly home right next door to me? Because he identified all these people who are sitting outdoors all by themselves all day long. What can we do to transform loneliness into community? Another kid said in his group said, hey, well, what about, I like, to, I like to do interior decoration. I got a disco ball. What if we put a disco ball up with some streamers? I'm like, that's great. A disco ball streamer taco party for the elderly. Another kid said, I don't like to talk. That's a problem. I said, well, what do you like to do? Well, I like to play chess. 
cool, why don't you bring your chess board down? He's like, yeah, let's make it a chess taco party, disco ball streamer party for the elderly. <laughs> and another girl, a female student said, well, I like to sing, but never given a concert before. I said, perfect. If you like to sing, tacos, singing, chess playing, disco party for the elderly. And these kids came up with this project idea on their own, not mandated by somebody, but on their own. And so to be able to think outside of the box divergently and circuitously, it's, it's, it poses an opportunity for kids to get back into their community, for students to get back into their community and identify things that are important to them. Hmm. Take back your life. You know. Take back your life. Just like Patrick was abandoned, guess what he's doing? He's taking care of the abandoned. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. In your weakness, there you find your strength in many ways, right? Very much so. I had a speech impediment in first grade, and here we are. And here you are. Look, <laughs> look at you doing, doing this podcast. We're probably going long, aren't we? No, no, we're going uh, just, just as planned. I, just give I, me, I told there. you, give me a microphone. I can keep going all day <laughs> long. I, I love it. And, and it reminds me... Uh, I was walking through Yerba Buena Gardens in San Francisco, and uh, throughout all the sights and sounds and smells of San Francisco, uh, I came across these gardens, and I was going through this waterfall area, and uh, there's all these different quotes, and I was like, who's laying down these, like, these, uh, these words of wisdom, you know, and I'm like, just, and they were translated into different languages uh, from all over the world, and one of them reminds me of what you're talking about it says an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity and that man was Martin Luther King Jr. right on and I didn't know that until I walked around and I saw the quotes and it said MLK Jr. Memorial wow and um, it was it was befitting because at the end of that um, you know, you see the streams of water that are rolling down. And the last quote is, No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Yeah. And you have all these streams of water going on, and I was like, okay, I see this. I see what you're doing here, San Francisco. Uh, and creating that moment, that momentum shift of thinking. Um is monumental because essentially, you know, we're walking around metaphorically and uh, in our own realities, you know, to where I think we get caught up with whatever we're doing. But there are opportunities in which if you just stop and look around, you start to pick up on things, you know, whether it's here in the local community and then also, you know, um, internationally speaking. You know, from just walking around and looking at life and what it's doing. So, you know, and learning from that international experience, I mean, I would have never guessed that, you know, uh, that kind of story would would take place and how it would move you to do what you do here locally. You know, it creates a different alternative perspective of thinking. Um, so in that same spirit, um, if you could offer any uh, encouragement, encouraging words for folks to get out and involved in the community um, what would you say you know yeah I mean first you know it's just a matter of like you say pay attention you know be astonished and, and then tell about it by doing something about it really 
Um, and you don't need, you know, you don't need, there's so many stories I have about this. You don't need to have a tremendous amount of experience. You just have to have the willingness and ability to go and proactively address something that's concerning to you. The research and all the other stuff comes along with it. You know, it's like, you know, you don't teach a kid how to throw a baseball by, by showing him diagrams or showing her diagrams on a computer. Just gotta do it, right? Baby. You just get out there and you do it. And then eventually that kid, whether or not he or she loves baseball, if, if they like baseball, they're going to start learning the rules of the game. They're going to start learning how to play at better and better levels. The same thing with compassion. The same thing with building hope in our community. It's what we're trying to do with students. Go out and start doing something. Practice that. Those muscles have muscle memory. And you start in, in kind of game theory, you're, you level up. Yeah. You, you level up with compassion. It gets better and stronger and faster and, and more intuitive and more sleek. And, and it's, it's quite astonishing. But without doing it, you're never going to experience it. So that's Sparrow Challenge. You know, we're, we're doing it right now for 10 to 20-year-olds all throughout the Tri-County area. We have, we're going to have 100 student-led projects. You're, if you're a student listening to this right now and want to do something, just go on the website, sparrowchallenge.com, and, and put out an application and get yourself out there. And we'll start uh, working with you for sure 100%. It'll be fun. But get out and find meaning by giving back. You know, another MLK Jr. Um, quote is the is you know the most urgent question we can ask is what are you doing for others? <laughs> you know, the most urgent question you can ask is what are you doing for others? Uh, and I'm not saying I'm not saying don't love yourself. You need to love yourself <laughs> in order to love others, 100%. But you know, what if you put your yoga practice inside of an old person's home or what if you uh, decide if you're a professional musician uh, bring your concert to a juvenile hall Johnny Cash style Johnny Cash style what's preventing you fear probably <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> okay yeah which is okay and and I think the first step in admitting to the fear is saying that you have it right and I remember talking to you about that I remember you know, trying to triangulate myself into talking to people um, that have been affected by homelessness and like having that innate fear within myself and kind of dealing with that uh, and understanding that the vulnerability in which can precede any human being. It could happen to you, it could happen to me. We're one injury away from missing work and Absolutely. You know, ending in that position, and uh, it reminds me of, of your colleague and friend in Uganda. That's right. Yeah. He's from Uganda, and it reminds me that like, if you have enough light at the end of the day to c continue on, you know, whether you're seeing that within yourself or someone else is like providing that light, you know, you can effectively light up the darkness. You sure can. And um, I think with that, it. Uh, it shapes and moves mountains, you know, to have that mustard seed of faith and to doing what you're doing and like knowing that like, okay, this is, you know, this is going to be substantial, you know, to create some sort of vision for yourself. Um, and so for, for you moving forward, what do you, um, what do you see with, with, with creating hope for the continuation of your life? 
Yeah, I want. I, I I'd love to see students just kind of find an addiction in building hope in communities in their own community. And uh, you know, not all not all students are going to jump into that world, but it it's absolutely beautiful to see the fire waking up in students' eyes and their hearts when they realize. You mean I can make change right now. I don't have to wait until I graduate from college. I'm, absolutely you can make change right now. That's the only time you can do it is right now. You got to be in the now here or the nowhere, right? You have to be <laughs> right there and be present to that moment. And so, you know, I, I think I was at a newscast, a news piece I saw recently where I think there was a, a widow, she was 90 or something, and, and a you know, bunch of younger men, they're all at a restaurant, and, and they hear that she's celebrating her birthday by herself, and so they decide to throw her an impromptu birthday party right there in the restaurant and surround her with love and joy, and that's community service. It's not, it's, it's, ro it's not rocket science, but it's rocket science, and the rocket science is getting past your fear. Hmm. If you can learn how to do that, you can start figuring out fun solutions, creative solutions. Well, we have an opportunity right here to take our little dinner. I'm sure these guys have been meeting for a long time, same conversations, and transform this moment for this woman and for us at the same time. I mean, just get past a little bit of fear. And, and when I say, and, and especially when I was doing a lot of work with our outdoor living neighbor population, people would always ask me, should I give? And inevitably that question revolved around, should I give money? And, and I, I say, you know, it's, it's entirely up to you whether or not you give money. But here's what you always give, no matter what. This is where you begin, this is where you stay, this is where you end. You always give human dignity. Hmm. What does that human dignity look like? Maybe it's for, the, for people who are fearful of this, maybe it's just looking at somebody that you'd normally ignore. Yeah. Without, any other without any other thing that you're going to do, just acknowledge Pay attention by their presence right there in front of you or right there on the side of the road. Maybe that's where you begin and then the fear starts alleviating and then you can take another step and you level up your game yeah. and compassion. Yeah, I, I remember one day I was, I was kind of, and I had no reason to, but like it just struck me that I was just, you have one of those days where you're just feeling off. Right. And uh, this was back in my undergraduate days in College Station Texas and I was just in a funk and I couldn't quite pinpoint why I was in the funk and I was going into uh, office that I was working for during the day and uh, my supervisor my secretary she was looking at me and she, she's a much much older woman and she looked took one look at me and she was like hey let's go get coffee <laughs> she said it just like that she was like Love it. and she took me out she bought a cup of coffee and we just sat there uh, in the living room space of our office and she folded her, her legs and she was like, how are you doing today? Let's, let's talk, you know? And like, she noticed me and I was like, oh, wow. Like someone's taking stock and like appreciating the moment that we get to share with each yeah. other. And <laughs> she didn't, she doesn't know it. And, uh, but that helped me without question and it's 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 a really small insignificant moment in my life but for whatever reason it sticks with you and we have all these little moments and it keeps us going it keeps the momentum going and I think uh, when, when someone is able to you know write something 
or, or tell you something or inspire you in some way, as insignificant as it may be, uh, and just noticing uh, each other, yeah, it does does lift your spirits up. And like, I think what you're alluding to sometimes it can be categorized as like soft skills, as periphery, mm-hmm. as like emotional, you know, intelligence, and to be able to notice not only yourself, you know, in these situations and how you act, but also other people in their situations, and. It's interesting, you know, we go to school, we learn these hard skills, um, but uh, yeah, those, those soft skills do, do pay dividends, you know, not only for yourself, but like people around you, you know, it's infectious. Yeah. Um, and meeting you, every time I see you, I, I, I feel like a leap of joy, you know, I'm like, okay, someone's, someone's on the path. You know? I don't know. Well, I appreciate that, but we're all on the path, brother. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I, I think moving forward um, with whatever happens in this community, I, I'm glad to be, I'm glad to be beside you, you know, and I'm glad we're, we're good friends. Likewise, Angela. I really just enjoy my time with you all the time and having this opportunity to kind of speak to a broader audience with your crew here on your podcast is just, uh, it's fun. And uh, man, from somebody who had a speech impediment to somebody who can rock the microphone, <laughs> it's impressive, man. It's impressive. Uh, to be continued. To be we'll, continued. We'll work on the soft and hard skills. There we Together. Together. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, right on. Thank you so much, Brian. And um, we'll keep keep this going, you know, as, as our lives transition and as this community transitions into overcoming uh, its fears and into effectively, you know, the community in which we all know is possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get off your donkey and go freaking do something. Do something. Go do something. Even though man. finals are here, I know the beach is right there. Be tempted. Yeah, but you can you buy know. somebody a cup of coffee who's just can't get out of the library, and you can say, "Hey, I noticed that you probably need this cup of coffee." Yeah. Do that. Make it happen, Captain. <laughs> right on. You've just heard an episode from Mr. Gonzalez's neighborhood here in Monterey, California. The episode had been a long time coming, and I'm very glad to say it is finally published and out there for people to chime in and really be inspired by Brian's words. Words of encouragement for the here and now. Ryan has helped me get over some of my fears, and I'm sure if you meet him at Cafe Lumiere or a Tuesday farmer's market, or just simply walking along your path here in the neighborhood, and you see Brian, he will see you, notice you, and smile, and want to genuinely see how you are doing. How are you doing? I know it's hard out there, but I know it will get better. Thank you for listening, and I hope this has been encouraging for you in your path today. Thank you. I can edit things as we sure. go. I plan to sure. fully. All right, so Dr. Axelborg, 
First okay. correction, I'm not a doctor. Not do no I'm doctor. I'm not a no doctor. I have a master's degree in library science, and I have a master's degree in religious studies. Master, master. But, but I am not um, <laughs> just, just Axel. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Um, well, I have asked you to come on to the Implications podcast sure. because of your extensive research into the California wine industry and history. Um, and we've got a lot to talk about in sure. terms of the implications of what's changing due to climate and mm -hmm. what's changing uh, due to, you know, movements in the industry. I'd love to hear first, though, about your background, how sure. you arrived here doing this research. So you were in the Army, and then you've spent about 30 years working as a researcher for UC Libraries. Sure. So. Um, I went to a small, first of all, my father was in the military, so um, I'm the oldest of four boys. All four of us got ROTC scholarships mm -hmm. to pay for college. I went to a small private college in Southern California, Pomona College, mm -hmm. and then I was commissioned in the Army because of ROTC and was commissioned as an armor officer. And so I ended up going, my first duty assignment was at Fort Ord waiting for school oh, yeah. to start, and so I was trained as an infantry officer to begin with. And then I went to Fort Knox, which is where I received my basic armor training and motor officer training, and then went to, was assigned to Germany, and spent a year on the East German border. This is Cold War time, um, serving on the East German border, patrolling the East German border. And then I was transferred to a tank battalion um, back in Mannheim, I, on the East German border, I was based out of a little town called Bad Kissingen. Mm. Um, so then I was assigned to a tank battalion in Mannheim. Um, I uh, served as a platoon leader in both a cavalry unit and a tank or armor unit, and then was assigned as a staff officer after that, and served as an intelligence officer in the tank battalion, and then was offered uh, company command of headquarters company. Uh, in the tank battalion and extended my tour in Germany. Normal tour would have been three years. I did four years and then I came back for my further training at Fort Knox and then uh, went to a place called Fort Irwin in Southern California, which was just starting up and it was the Army's answer to Top Gun. Mm. Um, so it was to create a combat environment because they had noted that if you could survive the first three days of combat, that your survival went up exponentially. So anything that you could do to simulate that. So the first was the Navy with Top Gun, and then the Air Force did a thing called Red Flag, and then we did a thing at Fort Irwin, which was basically, um, think of it as about 4,000 guys playing laser tag with <laughs> everything from rifles to main gun and artillery rounds over an area the size of the state of Rhode Island oh, for two natural. weeks. <laughs> and some of it with live ammunition. It redefines war games. It does yeah. redefine war games. So I did that for almost two years and then decided I'm getting out. So I got out of the Army. The question was, what do I do? I'd been mm -hmm. through some very advanced uh, management and uh, leadership kind of training, so an MBA was one thing. But I'd always loved books, and so I decided I'd opted for library school. And it was a very emotionally okay. based choice, not a rationally based <laughs> choice. Anyway, I ended up going to library school at Berkeley. Uh, while I was in library school, they opened 
uh, the federal government opened up the federal register because you had to get on that if you were going to get a job with the federal government. So I applied for that, got on the federal register with all my military experience. I was offered a position as a librarian at Fort Leavenworth, which is where the Army's Command and General Staff College is, and I'd gone through a course there already. And so I was like a prime candidate for this sure. thing and offered the job. And I said, I want to think about it. It was a long weekend. I said, let me get back to you on Tuesday. And I thought about it over the weekend. I thought I got out of the Army for a reason. And at, at the same time, coincidentally, I had been working in the agriculture library at Berkeley. And hmm. I had fallen in love with agriculture literature. Uh, it's kind of a weird thing, yeah. but you, you kind of realize the breadth and depth of what was coming out of the land-grant system, which is this incredibly powerful system that had started during the American Civil War and resulted in essentially research engines in support of industrial agriculture across the United States, but especially here in California. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do the Army option. I ended up working in a series of temporary jobs at Berkeley in the library, the agriculture library there, and then I got my first career track job at UC Santa Cruz gotcha. and I worked there for a couple years just about two years and it was in a general science background so I got a general science experience which has turned out to be very important for this job that I've been in since May of 1988 wow. and I was hired in to be the um, viticulture and enology librarian so the, the guy that handles the grape growing and wine making collection but also food science nutrition microbiology, there were some other little things that were in there. Think of me as the post-harvest librarian. Now, what that means is that within agriculture information, there's the plant information for growing plants. So plant cultivation, plant types, plant breeding, plant pathology, all of those things. That gets the plant grown for consumption or use. Same things happening in the animal side, breeding, types of animals, um, animal health, all of those kinds mm -hmm. of things. At the point that the animal is butchered or the plant is cut from the ground, it becomes my territory. Post-harvest. Post-harvest on that, which includes food safety, transportation, processing, all the way down to how it's processed through the human body, the nutrition part on it. So it's a really fascinating way to sort of see agriculture as this really big thing, but it has some rational connections mm -hmm. in it. And agriculture in California is virtually all food production. There's some cotton grown, and we don't generally eat cotton and yeah. those kinds of things. But when you look at the overall thing, it's either food directly for humans or it's food for animals that are producing food for humans, milk or meat or those kinds of things. So the vast part of California's agriculture is food oriented and that's why the state agency is the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Right. There's a rational answer to it and a rational organization to it. So um, that's s sort of what I, how I got there and what I do. Now within, um, in all of the areas of agriculture, all the areas of agriculture information here at Davis are at a level that they support all teaching and all research levels anywhere. So they're really top-ranked collections. Right. But there's four of them that are above that. They're, they're, they exceed that. One's grape growing, one's winemaking, 
one's bee biology and honey, hmm. and the other's nematodes. Hmm. There's a fifth one that's down in Special Collections, and it's historic agriculture technology. Gotcha. It's a, the tractor guys that like to restore tractors, they love that collection because <laughs> it's repair parts manuals, yeah. operator manuals, all of those kinds of things. But the, the, the two that I have are the grape growing and the winemaking part. Now, where they exceed the, the uh, level of being able to support all research and teaching is that, um, for example, I have the Wine Dog series, which is part of the wine yeah. story. You wouldn't necessarily think of that being important for an academic library. Um, it's culture. But it's culture. You're yeah. right. It is culture on that. And so it is all aspects of that. And we are the cultural, we, are, we strive to be the depository of record for, for everything. Mm. We ought to have, you know, if something comes within our ability to acquire it, we add it to the collection mm -hmm. so that somebody will have it. It is, it is held somewhere. Uh, and so that kind of gives you a, an, a, an idea of it. The numbers behind it for the grape growing and winemaking collection together, because they're integrated together, about 33, 34,000 volumes. But that's sort of a meaningless number at this point because we have a lot of stuff in electronic form. Mm -hmm. um, volumes include books but they also include the bound volumes of sets of journals and things like that. So um, that's why I'm, I don't place a whole lot of um, value in the total numbers, but people like to know sure. it's, it's a number thing. What is more important is I've identified 50 different languages in the collection <laughs> because U.S. libraries, especially academic libraries, if they're collecting at this level, collect without a national bias, which is the case European libraries do collect with a national bias. So if you go to the Wine Research Library in Geisenheim, it's likely to be almost all German. Right. It won't be 100% German because they'll have some other material in there, but it's the vast majority of it is German. We strive to get copies of things in different languages. So if it was originally in English, but translated, say, into Japanese, we would have both copies on that. Um, so that gives you an idea of sort of yeah. the, the breadth of it. We have a lot of popular literature. We have a lot of scientific literature. We have a, and all this goes back in depth too. Um, but it also we also collect things like ephemera, so wine labels, um, foldouts of wine processions of wine festivals in Switzerland in like 1905, and I'm thinking about yeah. a specific item on that. So things that um, document the story of wine in all aspects. And as you pointed out earlier, these things are cultural. Of course. But that particular strip that I'm thinking of that's illustrating this particular um, wine festival procession actually has pieces of farming equipment in it. And the, the drawings are pretty well detailed. <laughs> so it, it has some historic technology material in it too. It all depends on how you look at right. the material, how you engage it. Yeah, what you're looking for. Exactly. And what you can see in it. And if you go into something with the idea of, I'm going to look and see what I can find, go in with an open mind, then you start to see all sorts of things that you may not have seen if you go in and say, I'm looking to see X. 
uh, in there. I'm going, I want to look at this to see um, a, a festival. And so you're thinking in terms of a festival on it, but then you notice, you know, there's these other little details in it that sort of pop out at you and begin to give you this sort of enriched view of mm -hmm. things. It's great. It's, it's marvelous. That's one of the things that makes my job so wonderful is I encounter these things almost on a daily basis. Things that just, that, in which you discover something about. Exactly. The, uh, an element of wine history that you weren't necessarily looking for, but which exactly you happened upon in searching for something else. Exactly, and maybe yeah. even not in wine history, but contemporary wine um, art, wine attitudes, wine um, in wine culture that's happening today. Um, looking at new wine labels and how they're designed and what they're appealing to. You said that the collections that you curate are used by research, and both undergraduate and graduate research here, but are there people in the wine industry who consult your work product? Yes. Uh, what, can you give me some examples of people they, like that? They, they range, and so let me give you a couple of things sure. on a spectrum. Recently we had somebody that brought their tasting room staff in here to say, hey, we're in the area, you guys ought to know about this collection because there's a lot of stuff that you could come in and do some self-education on. So I thought that was a really good outreach kind of thing. Sure. Um, an another would be somebody who's coming in to do some historic research about their particular situation. An example is there's a person over in the, the um, Santa Rosa area he has land just outside of Santa Rosa, and he grows some grapes, but it's on historic property. And so he had been using the collection to find out more about this particular historic property hmm. because there's ruins of a winery, or were ruins of a winery on his property, and he's restored the, the foundation of it. The top part, or the bottom part was stone, um, and he's restored that. The top part was a wooden structure, and I don't know whether he's going to restore the wooden right. wooden structure or not. But he wanted to find out more about this, the particular owner of this, and yeah. so he's a person from industry. He's not growing a lot of grapes, but he's selling his grapes into um, a winery. He has a contract with a specific winery, so um, he's. Um, I, this may sound a little bit pejorative. It's almost like a hobby for him. He's got money from that he gets someplace sure, else, but. Sure. You know, he likes the idea that he's got 20 acres of Chardonnay, and he's, yeah. and he's making some money off of it, and well, that's great. I mean, I can tell you, having worked in wineries, that the story behind the grapes is as important as the quality of the wine itself. Whether you're selling grapes to a winemaker or whether you're a winery selling wine, having a story is everything. Absolutely, because it's the story that connects people yeah. to things. That's why stories are so important in so many different things. I've, to digress a little bit, but one of the things that really, that I really enjoyed when I was getting my master's in religious studies was, because I focused on the Hebrew Bible or the Old <laughs> Testament, and it's the stories in there, yeah. and it's the stories of engagement on that. There's a movie called Big Fish. Oh, I love that movie. It, it's one of my favorites. It, it, and it's storytelling, and you tell the story enough you become the story. Yeah. That's the value of the story. 
You, in, in you remind me a little bit of the the father in that. Oh, cool! Thank you, because <laughs> uh, Albert Finney. I mean, that's yeah. a great person to be yeah. associated. Almost with. down to the voice. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's. I I use that movie as a way of just sort of engaging people into the value of stories. But you're absolutely right on this. Understanding yeah. the story of where something comes from really then gives you context for for understanding yeah. that. Um, another example of someone who's been using the um, collection is, let me think about this, um, we, we do get people that come in and are looking for technical data. Mm -hmm. um, recently, um, we got a grant from Mark Mead to process the Harold Olmo papers, and he's one of the people that's a significant you early mentioned Olmo, yeah. And um, they were looking at his papers, this started five or six years ago, they were looking at his papers to get data from his papers on what he was doing at Larkmead because they were they knew he had done some work there. Now Larkmead is winery just north okay. of Saint Helena, and um, there they in fact sell a wine that's called Doctor Olmo. It's <laughs> named for him. They have been able to identify the exact plot of land that he used within their vineyards to wow. do some experimental work. Now the sequence that's been that's been determined so far because, you know, the Oakville Cabernet, Oakville is the mm -hmm. um, research station that the university has. The university has two 20-acre plots in the Oakville AVA. Right they're in the sort of Napa-Sonoma border area. Well, yeah. no more in, in within the old Tokalon vineyard. So okay. um, when you drive up, what, what is it, uh, 129, the main road up north and south yeah. in Napa, so as you pass Robert Mondavi on your left, in fact, the sign now says Tokalon. Gotcha. So that's the old, old Tokalon Vineyards, the oldest named vineyard in the state. And so it's okay. considered the prime area within the prime area, <laughs> if Napa's considered prime area. Now, For now, yeah. Well, you know, it all depends on this. I prefer Sonoma personally because I like getting out of the hustle and bustle of Napa. But getting back to Tokalon, 20 acres within it and 20 acres probably within it. It's a little flaky in terms of the exact boundaries and, and all that. But Na uh, the, the Oakville Cabernet is sort of the premier Cabernet or has a reputation of being the premier Cabernet. So how did it get to Oakville? Apparently, and this is using the papers and, and other things, the original cuttings came from Cundy. And they went from Cundy to Larkmead and then from Larkmead to Oakville, and then get disseminated out of Oakville. Okay. So there's some interesting stories to try and piece together of where does a particular cutting of something, or cuttings, it's usually not just yeah. one, it's a bunch of them, and they're using cuttings by clonal selection, selecting the better vines right. on it, and then cutting the thing out of it, and then those things then become the basis of um, at least the beginning part of the Napa story on Cabernet. And then as we refine things, we get more precise, you know, this Cabernet clone, whatever, this one clone, whatever. Same right. with Chardonnay and those kinds of things. But the original thing comes down through Larkmead and almost, almost part in that. And I'm kind of jumping ahead yeah. um, on that. Because anyway, that's part of that. How do we work with climate and grapes. Well, this sounds like a good yeah. lead-in for, I mean, you're talking about Napa Cabernet, Oakville Cabernet being a premier 
um, a beginning premiere. Yeah. 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 I want to move this a little bit toward the climate change sure. conversation because you were telling me when I walked in here that now is the time to drink your Napa cab because who knows if it's going to be viable for what tell me what's the time frame people are talking yeah, about 10 years 20 years it all depends I think a lot of it is journalistic um, trying uh, to generate trying to trying, you know and, and it is of concern climate of change is of concern and when you talk to the growers they'll say yeah it's gotten warmer you say when was your last frost well maybe 10 years ago or you know, we haven't had a frost where we had been having frosts every year and that's why you have those big wind machines uh, you say well when was the last huh. time you turned those on they go well you know we haven't turned them on for 10 years or 11 years or whatever so it is getting warmer we also looked at uh, the climate data for the for the Winkler areas the the, the Winkler zones Winkler scale the the tell me more about that um, so let's go back to the beginning sure. on this and uh, the beginning in this case is prohibition because before prohibition the university certainly was involved in doing research it was focused on phylloxera and other kinds of bugs that were pro diseases that were attacking grapes they were also trying to figure out what grape should be grown where mm -hmm. but they weren't really taking a systematic approach to it um, they were just kind of planting stuff and seeing if it would make good wine or not. A lot of variables in there. So prohibition shuts everything down, sort of. Um, there's a great saying, the problem with prohibition is that it didn't. <laughs> and the problem with repeal is that it hasn't. <laughs> and it is a good way to kind yeah. of visualize that. but. Uh, I kind of think of prohibition as being a timeout for the university to kind of regroup. Sure. And uh, during prohibition, a man by the name of Albert Winkler is hired. And this, at this point, it's called the Department of Viticulture and Fruit Products. This is within the University. Davis is the farm. Berkeley is the main campus. Um, this is sort of. The, the Davis campus is where a lot of agricultural work is going on and increasing number of classes are being taught at Davis. Mm -hmm. So prohibition ends and, and Winkler is the first person uh, to head up the new department. He has to rebuild this department um, that had been uh, the viticulture and enology department before prohibition where they had been teaching both grape growing and winemaking classes to just looking at grape growing on that. The first person that he hires is a man by the name of Harold Olmo, who's a plant breeder and plant explorer. And he's looking at looking for, he's looking at can we breed grapes that will make good wine, European like wine, in the hot Central Valley because so far that had really not worked mm. out. So that's one approach to climate, the hot valley. And when we're talking about climate at this point, we're really looking at climate diversity across the state. There isn't a notion of climate change at this point. 
It's just we've got the Great Central Valley, which is this wonderful production area for all sorts of types of agriculture, but it's not making particularly good wine yeah. out of it. You can make wine, but not particularly good wine. Yeah. You're making great wine in places like Napa and Sonoma and Livermore and you know, places like that, um, but you're also making some not so great wine there. So what should be grown where? That's the other question. And in 1935, they hire a guy by the name of Maynard Amering. Now he had actually started working before that, and there's a, a lot of myth and, um, I don't want to say quite misinformation, but um, mythology around him. And it, he's, he's a fascinating person. I had the opportunity to essentially work as uh, in a mentor, a, a mentor situation. He was my a close mentor for almost a decade. Wow. And um, he would tutor me on grapes and wine, which was great. Um, sort of getting a first-hand education without having to take the tests or pay the tuition. Um, but he was, uh, anyway, he was hired, the, the Maynard story is another story, we'll talk about that another time. We'll talk about the climate part now because I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, he was hired to work with Winkler to figure out what grape made the best wine in what area. And they were initially going to look at two things, the effect of climate and the effect of soil, right. what we would now call terroir, although terroir is m much more complex than that. Um, but very quickly they dropped off the soil part. They didn't have the resources to do all of those variables, mm -hmm. and they decided to just look at climate. And so they started going up and down the state asking for donations of grapes at harvest time. And they would take these grapes to Davis and make them into wine. And this started in 1934 and ended in 1942 because of World War II. But in that time period, 34 to 42, eight years, they made over 6,000 batches of wine <laughs> from different varieties of grapes grown in different areas of the state to then figure out what was going to make a good wine or not a good wine. What did they find? Well, they found that uh, the vast majority, well, let's not say the vast majority, certainly around uh, between a third and a half of the grapes that were being grown for wine in California should not be grown for grapes or for <laughs> wine, not as not as not as a wine. Right. So they eliminated a bunch of just saying these are not what we should be growing. Really. Okay. Uh, but then they started to focus in on certain things, and they would say, well, you know, in this particular range of temperatures, um, this zone or what we now call the the Winkler scale, or you know, sometimes they call it we're in District One, or you know, however the the tour guide is talking about this, um, they found that certain grapes did well, and so they would recommend that. The recommendations were published in an issue of a journal called Hilgardia in 1944. Now, Maynard Amarine had gone into the Army like a lot of guys mm -hmm. did during the war, and in 1944 he was serving in India. So 
the drafts of the article were sent to him. Winkler was here because he was too old to serve. Right. Uh, he was past uh, age. Um, but Amarine's editing these things in India and it's being sent through the mail back and forth. I think it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, this thing's published in 1944 and it basically is a guide to growers on what you should plant where. Uh, and don't plant these, these are marginal, this is what we recommend. So you can go back to that and look at that. Problem was, Hilgardia was really directed towards scientists. It was the scientific publication that was coming out of the California Agriculture Experiment Station, which is part of the University of California land-grant uh, system. So it wasn't until 1963 after the war, and they had resumed this program after the war, and they took it up to, I think, 1952 or 53, not quite 20 years. Um, and then that data was then published in a series called Circular, or no, not Circular, Bulletin uh, series. The Bulletin series was aimed at the grower, so now the information is being aimed at the grower. And it's in this period that you start seeing things like, hey, let's plant Chardonnay in the Carneros region mm -hmm. and try it out. You know, and, and now Chardonnay in the Carneros regions, pretty good. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people that will say, well, the Winkler thing is not very good, or it's bad recommendations, or we don't follow them anymore. It's a starting point. Mm -hmm. And it's a starting point to begin to think about what should we plant where, because grapes are highly dependent on climate. And different kinds of grapes need different climate situations. So that work stops in the early 50s, and then we start to, climate change starts to rear its ugly head, what, about 25, 30 years ago, with the first yeah. people saying, wait a minute, things are warming up. In the 1970s, people start. Exactly. You blowing know, the whistles. And saying, you know, we something's happening here and it becomes more and more because people really engaged in it. And um, but the university really didn't do anything at, at this point. It was looking at other problems. It was engaged in doing other things for the for the wine industry. And it's important to understand that the university's role is not to teach people in the industry to make the one or two Screaming Eagle bottles of wine. It's to make sure that all of the wine in California is good wine. That as good as it can be. As good as it can be on that. And um, so with that notion, it's hard to find a bat, I find it's hard to find a bottle of badly made California wine. There's a lot yeah. of California wine that's not particularly interesting, but it's not bad. You know, now there could be individual bottle issues, but there's very little badly made wine. And that's one of the accomplishments of the university is to make sure that the standard for all wine is quality wine, good wine. And then, and that's, that's what I see as the science part of this. The other part's the art part of it, mm. because it is both science and an art. And it's the person who brings the art part or the craft part into it that then says, how can I make this interesting? What can I do to this based on what I've got yeah. on it? Anyway, getting back to climate. So climates come about. Climate is of interest. 
we did a study here in the library where we took the same methodology that had been used in that 1944 Hilgardia issue that covered from 1934 to 1942 and we projected it forward using data, current climate data, up to 2015. And we found that every zone has gone up one. And what was a zone one is now a zone and two. And what does that gradation represent? It means when each time you go up, it's hotter. Okay. So Carneros is hotter by one than what it was. So in 2015 compared to? 34. Okay, so each each zone is basically up one on that Winkler, or is that the Winkler? The Winkler scale is what this okay. is called collectively, yeah. and when you see maps of areas or you read a description of the where the grape was grown for a particular wine, they might say it was grown in the Carneros region, which is zone one or district one of this, and that implies certain temperatures. Uh, on it. Well, that is no longer true. Now, Certain you, grape viabilities. Well, there's other things that can be done, and this is where, again, where I think the university does have a role in this and has helped. Different cultural practices, how you treat the vine, can it prolong or uh, help the grape adapt to the increasing temperature? So you can, by cultural practices, you can get the same or similar quality out of a grape, even though the temperature has risen. Mm -hmm. Maybe by more watering, maybe by a different kind of cultivation in the middle of the ground between the rows, mm -hmm. maybe with different pruning techniques for shading. You know, any of any or all of these things go into, you know, how you cultivate that grape. And, and techniques have shown that, you know, where they would say maybe Napa has 10 years to grow to go before you're no longer going to be able to grow Cabernet. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be another question. If they, say, re, redid the study, the, mm -hmm. that time-lapse sort of projection into the future that ended at 2015, if they did that now for the next 75 years, I would expect they'd see some even more extreme changes on the horizon, especially if no work is done on the Abs sort of carbon neutrality front. Abs absolutely. And now the question is how fast it goes. Yeah. There, I don't think that anybody would think that it is a linear progression right. because there are so many different things we're still learning about this, but it is going to get hotter on that. And at some point, um, Chardonnay in the Carneros region is not going to be doing particularly mm -hmm. well in making wine. But maybe a white wine from Greece that sure. might be a, a, a choice. So there's two things that can be done and you know when we when I mentioned that there's articles that say you know drink your Cabernet now because and what prompted me on that was my sister-in-law sent me a link to an article she's a big uh, uh, she, she's a big Cabernet fan mm -hmm. so that's her thing so she sent me this thing have you seen this and then sent this link you know with four or five exclamation marks on it and things like that so sensationalist uh, so, well uh, she's concerned yeah you know and she wants to know what's going going on on this and and um, you know, it's journalism is designed to get people's attention. Of 
course. And, uh, and to then bring people in. And if it's a well-written article, you know, it gets your attention, brings you in, and then tells, here's what is going on. One approach would be we can do these things to, you know, get another 10 years out of it so you don't have to rip your vines out now. Um, another thing would be um, maybe going to a different grape, which yeah. then means some education to the public. Because if the only thing you've been drinking is um, Cabernet and some Pinot and maybe an occasional Merlot, and now you should be drinking maybe something that's more warm climate yeah. like on this. And it's c kind of leading, you know, one of the things that it's leading me to think about is there's the science part connects to the growing and making part connects to the education because it's ultimately it has to be consumed. Somebody yeah. has to buy it. Nobody's going to make wine for free. Yeah, and you're going to be trying to influence consumer choices based on your marketing. You know. Exactly, and and so we we've been doing that for a standard set of things, the big grapes on this. But how do we educate people to trying other types of grapes out there that might be better suited to the climate that we've got now because of climate change? Mm -hmm. Has this has the wine industry, even you know, with the I, I don't want to say meager changes in climate that we've experienced because there have been some pretty extreme manifestations of climate change sure. already. But have there been any particular adjustments in the industry that wineries or wine growers have had to cope with both in a from a production sense um, or from a marketing like public relations sense where they have to recalibrate their customer base to adjust them for a new new paradigm let's say. I mean, whether it's, we can't grow this so well anymore, but this is really good. Um, I mean, I, I, I grew up as Pinot Noir was kind of becoming mm -hmm. yeah. like a very popular grape. I don't know if it was that movie Sideways or what, but uh, I, if you can describe to me maybe an instance where the wine industry has had to ad adjust for things outside of its control, let's just say. Um, you know, I can't think of something that connects back to climate directly um, because there's so many things that climate pushes that you, you don't know on this. Right. Is, is our hotter temperatures that we're documenting and more frequency of droughts a climate uh, change issue that industry is having to adjust to. Last year was a, a wetter than normal, but not extremely wet winter. We had overproduction of grapes. We had grapes left on the vines hmm. uh, on that. Now, the, the friend sent me a link to an article, um, and it's like, bad news was what he put in his thing and then this link and I, I go to the article and it says um, we've had a slightly less than or slight, what is it slightly more than half of the normal water and this drought portends lower grape uh, production in Napa um, which is logical 
on that. So we're going from a bumper crop to a lower crop, and you see these you see these um, uh, fluctuations in all sorts of areas of agriculture happens all the time. You're talking about this past winter being relatively dry, right? The winter that we're in now, where we're where we're it almost feels behind us because February feels like spring, exactly, which is. I mean, evidence of all of what we're talking yeah, about. Exactly. You know? It's changing, not just temperature. There are flowers blooming that I've never seen bloom in a February before. It, exactly. Yeah. Because of the temperature, probably. Yeah. Probably. But it's it's more than just um, temperature. It's mm-hmm. rainfall, you know, these other kinds of things. I'm not a scientist. I'm a, I'm, my background is the humanities on this, humanities, social sciences. And, but working in the sciences and being exposed to this and talking with scientists and helping scientists find information that they need, you realize that this, this thing that we're dealing with is incredibly complex. Whether the thing is the wine industry, there's no monolithic, uh, it's not a monolithic California wine industry. It's extremely varied and complex within it. Um, every once in a while, a graduate student will appear and say, where's the book that shows the model of the California wine industry? Because I want to do a sociological study of it. And I'll say, the book? The, the book, yeah. <laughs> every possible yeah. model that you can think of is out there, plus ones you can't imagine now that you're going to encounter. On that, uh, you know, I like to say, you know, the label Three Sisters, it's sold in Target, which means mm. it's probably an economic success. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's in the $12 bottle range or something like yeah. that. Three Sisters is owned by three women wine executives. They produce, they make no wine. All they do is buy wine in bulk, blend it, and then bottle it. So that's Three Sisters. There's no winery, there's no vineyard to go to. But it's a label, and we know these kinds of things mm-hmm. that are, are out there. And then, of course, there is your more, more traditional kind of, kind of setup. But getting back to <coughs> the climate on this and looking at the, mm-hmm. the things, um, I, I think, and I think many climate scientists would uh, echo this, climate is a variety of things, so it's not just the heating. It's whether it gets drier or wetter, depending on where you're at. Um, we're just beginning to look at the temperature within soil mm. on that. We've never, you know, we've always considered temperature to be something in the air, yeah. but temperature in the soil drives the fluid intake of the plant, um, how, how the plant uh, works. Grapes and many plants uh, are particularly sensitive to temperature, and at some some point they go dormant when it gets below a certain temperature, and at some point they go dormant when it goes above a certain temperature, and then nothing's happening, or very little's happening within the plant. So as we figure out not just air temperature, but soil temperature and moisture, which is affecting soil temperature and air temperature, and all these other kinds of things getting in into that, we're going to get bumper crops, we're going to get low crops, probably accelerated, my guess. Mm. You see a certain fluctuation over time anyway, um, it, but this this kind of, ex, it's gonna accelerate that. Um, yeah, it's just, 
kind of boggles the mind in a yeah. way. And I wish I could say, here's a particular thing where it's, and this is the way that industry has responded in it. Industry, wine industry, like everything else, has climate change deniers in it, a, a lot of them. Uh, it has uh, people that do believe in climate change um, and are, are, are consciously working towards it, looking at it. The, the folks, uh, Dan Petrovsky, who's the winemaker at uh, Larkmead, um, he's a believer in climate change and he's looking at ways to figure out new cultivation techniques to continue to grow Cabernet because that's what their mm -hmm. big seller, but at the same time, maybe we should be exploring some other things. And he's taken some vineyard land and set it aside to plant a variety of different grapes in there to see how they do in that particular piece of ground. Kind of repeating the experiments that were done by Omo, Winkler. Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. And, and the work on Winkler and Omo, or Winkler and Amarine on that too. Yeah. So they've taken a number of, um, and, it, and it's right near their tasting area. So if you go to taste, or any of the listeners go to taste at mm -hmm. Larkmead, ask to see the test plot that they're doing and ask about the test plot. They're just planting it now. They won't have crop to look at for four years. Sure. But they're, and maybe that is the example that um, where somebody is yeah. actually doing something to, to it. But, you know, it takes time. Sure. You know, you can't plant a vine but in a year later. But the best stories take some time, too. Oh, absolutely. Because that's, that's kind of what I'm seeing now. If this is a story of change. Yes. And if a winemaker, if anybody at any part of the, in the, of the winemaking business, whether it's growing the grapes or selling the wine, um, can not, I don't want to say take advantage of, but just kind of move with this flow of climate change. And whether it's planting an experimental plot and having that to show guests in your tasting room, you know, showing them that you are trying to adjust for the future right. and plan for the future and do things that are new. Because I, I can only imagine that there are going to be people in the industry trying to maintain some level of what they're doing now because it's been working, but it's simply just not going to anymore. Yeah. They might get lucky, um, maybe just for the next five, ten years, but um, it sounds like the best way that a, the, the wine industry could cope with climate change is to just make it part of the story. Uh, it's an evolving, you know, an evolving art. You're absolutely correct. It is always changing. Agriculture is, is characterized by change. Um, normal fluctuations are what we might have thought of normal as normal fluctuations. I don't think there's any normal agriculture left in the state of California <laughs> because of climate change, and I think it's the same anywhere in the world on that. Um, what the farmer is trying to do, the grower is trying to do, is within the context of nature, create something that we can eat, mm. either directly or indirectly on that. The processing of that takes place by the, the winemaker, the, the processor on it. Sometimes it's the same person. Mm -hmm. um, within 
one of the things that I find interesting within the wine industry is that the wine maker will generally be monitoring the vineyardist. If they're not the same person, they're at least out there looking at the vineyard along with the vineyardist on that. So they have a great deal of, uh, of concern in what's happening on that. That's not happening with the peanut butter guy. He's mm. not out there in the peanut field making sure that the peanuts are being harvested at the right time when they have the right sugar level or right. those kinds of things. It's not happening with, with it, it may be happening with things like orange juice, you know, and those kinds of things. I don't know enough about that. But for most of agriculture, there isn't that kind of connection between the processor and the grower. But with wine, it is because it is so inter interconnected on that. And I would say that those guys out there, and it's not just guys, it's yeah. men and women who are winemakers and grape growers, like to tell the myth that all we do is get out of the way and everything sort of happens naturally. <laughs> In fact, they're looking at this with eagle eyes, mm -hmm. and they are ready to intervene at any point if nature strays. And they have a whole toolkit to do to be able to do that. Yeah. They're also intervening by the decisions they make. When do you harvest? And at what do you do? How do you process the grape on that? And the the, the all these changes, uh, not changes, all these decisions. Uh, that are made, um, you know, they start from when you decide what rootstock are you going to match to what scion and what particular environmental circumstances are you putting that mm -hmm. plant into. It's now a unified thing. Yeah, That's the first choice. And then you go from choices on trellis, not trellis, irrigate, not irrigate. How do you irrigate? How do you prune? You know, how do you train? All of those kinds of things into it. And then uh, you, you know, then you get into when do you harvest? Uh, how do you transport? What do you do? I mean, it's going to be one thing if you harvest, crush, and start fermenting, you know, meters away from where you've grown it, mm -hmm. or if you harvest, crush, put it in a tank car, and send it to Long Island, yeah. and that's done too. You know, so you can inoculate it, and it's got a three and a half day. If your option, you know, if everything goes well, right. to get to the other side of the of the country, so it's a lot of variables in it in a changing environment. I don't envy that. It's great. It's I, I mean, it's great in the sense that I love looking at it. It's, people say, people have asked me, "Well, do you make wine?" No, I don't make wine. It's too hard. <laughs> I want to enjoy the wine that other people have made. Mm. Now, I have a great deal of admiration for home winemakers. And I have even more admiration for those people that get in and do it for, as a profession yeah. because it's a hard job. Well, there's going to be a tension now going forward between respecting traditional methods mm -hmm. and going for traditional palates, uh, you know, profiles of what you have come to expect from a specific grape grown in a specific place to what climate and just all sorts of different changes are going to necessitate. Um, Winemaking is probably going to undergo some very tumultuous adjustments, it sounds like. 
for, for every level of those decisions you were talking right. about. And in that, as wine comes out the other end, there's going to need to be a educational component. I think that wine writers and wine journalists can contribute to that, talking about mm -hmm. new varieties, how good they are, what It could be expect. exciting. It should be exciting. I hope so. It should be exciting. And this is where I have great hope in um, the millennial generation, the generation that was so badly beat <laughs> up in the economics yeah, of this last I decade. Feel that. And you know, I think you're you're it. I am you're it. <laughs> you know, That's why I'm working in a winery <laughs> <laughs> with two degrees. Yeah. But what are your degrees in? International relations and public administration. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Both actually pretty good for the wine industry. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. You just have it makes for interesting conversation in the tasting room. I'm sure. Yeah. But it also has, you know, thinking about the globalization let, let of wine. Let me back here. Yeah. You know? So, but, but getting back to the millennials, my great hope is that uh, this is a generation that's willing to experiment. We are very much open to change. And yeah. that's great. That's going to be the salvation of things like the wine industry. And that the millennials are also, you millennials, you are willing to try something more than Cabernet or Absolutely. more than Chardonnay. You're willing to try different craft beers. You're willing to try cocktails. You're willing to try the whole range of things that are out there. And it's, bring, it's a boon to these other industries, these other segments of the of the food society or food uh, the food um, world on this so I, I think that that's that's really really important uh, on that um, can't say enough uh, on that you're myself you you are you collectively represent our salvation I feel like this this is this note of hopefulness is a great place to draw things to a close good I really appreciate um, being that you see the future of, of not just the wine industry, but it sounds like there are a lot of adjustments that are going to have to be made in consumption patterns, whether it's yes. luxury items like wine yes. or just the crops that sustain people on a daily basis or you know, yes. the animal proteins, food, pro uh, plant proteins, whatever it is that's going to keep us alive. We're going to have to be open to new possibilities for meeting our needs. Um, so, you know, this conversation was about wine for the most part, right. but I think it has implications, implications. <laughs> it's in everything. <laughs> thank and you for there completing that sentence. Uh, Master, Master Borg, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, this was wonderful. This was, um, 